Welcome to episode 12 of Hope Between the Lines. This podcast is dedicated to great conversations with some pretty great people. And today's great person is Paul Herkman. He is somebody that I had the privilege of meeting 20 years ago. And the impression that he left on me then has only been reaffirmed more strongly time and time. Again, I'm so excited for you to join us for our conversation today as we journey through what does it mean to live a life that is driven by the gospel? What does it mean that you can be right but discover that you kind of are wrong? What does it mean to use your two eyes, your two ears, and your one mouth to make this world a better place. So we're going to dive into all of that and so much more on today's episode of Hope Between the Lines. Well, Paul Herkman, welcome to Hope Between the Lines. Thanks, buddy. So good to be here. One thing that has jumped off the page every time we've been able to share the same air mm-hmm. is the way that you live life with just this uh, realness to it. I love how there's no pretense about you. What I see is what I get, and I've seen it so many times. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is refreshing. This is encouraging. And I just kind of want to hang out more with you because of that. And uh, so I appreciate that so much about you. You just bring yourself to every moment, and that's refreshing to me. Man, thanks. I I appreciate that. I um what I have appreciated about the different, and we have shared a lot of spaces. I like it when you say sharing the same air, um, sharing the same space. We, we've shared it from, from North Central over to Wisconsin, to camps, to traveling and speaking together, to our families being around one another. Yeah. Um, and so we've had a, an opportunity to vet one another, you know, um, see how we treat spouses and kids. And so to hear what you said, I want to say thanks and reciprocate that. I think friendship uh that it has extended across boundaries in years is a really beautiful thing. I'm tracking with you. And thank you. Thank you. One of the most powerful moments that I can remember uh, where you were in the same room and you were speaking and it was this compelling thought. And then you threw the biggest curveball us Bible college students never saw coming. You played a Dave Matthews band music video where everyone's hugging each other. And then you proceed to walk off the platform and just start hugging people. And then to my right and to my left, people are hugging everybody. It was the most beautiful, unexpected moment. uh, One of them for me in that room, because it took the nature of what it meant to be part of something great to uh, realness. Because one deficiency in all of our religious systems is that it becomes sterile if we're not careful. And what I love about that moment in chapel years ago was that you dropped a really great bomb in a room and set us all up to treat each other better. Do you remember that service? 
I do. Um, it wouldn't have immediately come to mind, but I have a grin because people okay. are only listening and they can't see. I have a grin because that was a fun moment. Um, and it's rewarding to hear when people say back to you, uh, not just that what you did impacted them, but say back to you, you you basically just told me a little bit about my spiritual journey um, mm. and how I see life. And one of the things that's important to me is that um, for my spiritual journey is that it is in technicolor, like that it, it comes to life in multiple places and it's not domesticated. I don't want it just to be boxed into um, a Sunday morning experience or when I'm a, around a group of people that tend to have a monolithic type thinking, but like at any point, the kingdom can explode. And uh, for me, sometimes that happens through music. I'm not a musician. Um, and oftentimes it happens through music that doesn't fall under a particular genre or have the name Hillsong connected to it. Although right. great music. So enter, if, if I could pick Dave Matthews would actually be the worship leader for the church of Paul Herkman, not the church of Paul Herkman. I'll stop there, but you know what I mean? Um, and so that I actually, the song, if I remember right in the video is probably every day. Um, and there's just this dude making people's lives better by hugging. Um, and I, for me, what that meant was, what does it look like for me personally? It challenged me, inspired me to think about how am I adding love and how am I adding value and how am I um, also recognizing and seeing one of the ways that we add love is not just by what we do, but by recognizing the dignity uh, in another person and saying, I see you and you are so worth coming near to, especially think about we're in this time of social distancing, where like, we're going to have to get reintroduced to what hugging somebody else means. You know, when I see you, I know you and me are good, you know, like, You've been sick already, and I don't care. I'm going to give you a hug because I want to wrap myself around those big old weightlifting chest boobs you have. <laughs> and because I know you genuinely, you know, you squeeze a friend like they're your friend. And I think it's that moment that not just physical contact, but you're worth coming close into my world. Wow. Wow. I, I love so much about what you just said because I think that is a key to living a great life. When you step outside of your paradigm and you broaden your circle and you see that everybody around you has inherent worth, everybody has immutable value. It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter what they wanna do 10 years from now. The instantaneous truth that every single person on this planet has worth. Mm -hmm. Man, I I just wonder what could happen yeah. when when we would all just embrace the day and see everybody as our neighbor. Yeah, because that's right. Because too, too often we we get tribal in in the in the negative sense of the word. And I want to maybe dive into what you're currently doing right now with venture, mm -hmm. and just maybe help the listener understand what venture is all about. And then we can meander through what it what it does. That sounds good. And you'll help me. So let's make sure you and I form a covenant right now that you don't let me do an elevator pitch about what venture is. Let's have a conversation. So um, I'm going to start with probably the 
the more powerful or poignant word that we say we're about, and that is justice for the unreached. And so we work in areas of the world where um, there is uh, some of the greatest injustices happening. Uh, we focus on four specific injustices, human trafficking, refugee crisis, extreme poverty, and persecution, either by how somebody was born or what they believe. And then in those areas, which is almost solely Southeast Asia, we work with a network of community leaders, often pastors, that are working to address both the immediate need and the long-term need. And so that's like relief and development for those people who know those kind of code words, um, but immediately things like feeding and safety. We feed about 7 million or provide about 7 million meals a year. Um, and we provide safety for over 700. Now that can be girls and boys rescued from trafficking or intercepted before being trafficked. Um, because in some of the villages and areas that we serve in uh, Southeast Asia, up to 70% of the kids are being sold because they are born to a caste that they are told that's the result of, um, well, they believe in karma and in a past life, they did something wrong, so they're paying for it in this life. So it's it's deeper than religious. It is a cultural, societal caste type system. Anyway, um, so we provide food and safety, but then we also do education. We do farming. We do um, agribusiness, entrepreneur, um, and then we do church planting. We are a faith-based organization, and I really deeply believe in the presence of a local church. Um, I'm guessing your listeners are broad and, and we represent a lot of different belief structures, but the church isn't just about getting people to join my team. The church represents um, these kingdom values that an unruly rabbi on the side of a mountain. That's what I like to Jesus. Um, what he talked about works right now, not just to get out of hell and into heaven. Um, when you're in an area where people believe that they are less than where they've been told historically, systemically, generationally, that you are less and you come in and say, no, what if you are equal? What if you are not the lowest, but you are the highest? What if you are a daughter or a son of royalty? And then what if we are responsible? Love your neighbor is something that we all know. Uh, but this word that we see in scripture called peace or shalom is the interconnected thriving. So mm -hmm. when you start going into communities and saying you're responsible for one another, you all have infinite value. And if you work together, there's interconnected thriving. All of those things transforms not only individuals, but whole communities. And so how about I stop there? Because yeah. that was a lot, but that is what we do on the international side. Well, and I think having been in the same room with you as you've shared the stories of life change, I think statistics often get lost in translation, but mm -hmm. stories connect with the soul. And I remember learning about your friend, Hannah. Yeah. And whew, huh, I, uh, I was so moved by the power of the gospel in her life and uh, how unspeakable things uh, were perpetuated against her people she uh, was mistreated in ways that no human being should ever, ever be treated. And she's smiling. Yeah. 
and she's living a hope-filled life. Yeah. And that, as you, <laughs> you might see it right now, but that wrecks me in a necessary way. Yeah. Like, one thing that I never want to be done in my heart is where I become calloused to the needs of others. Yeah. I, Hannah's story tends to stick with people in a deep way. Um, and I, I love that because it honors where she's been and where she's going. Most of all, it honors what the kingdom is doing in her and through her. Hannah was in one of those villages where up to 70% are trafficked. And if you really wrap your mind around picturing 10 kids that you know between the ages of, call it six and 12, just line them up and go seven of them are going to be sold into, um, at best, uh, forced labor, at worst, sex trafficking, where um, estimates of things being done to them 20 and 30 times every single day. Um, you... I don't know that our brains in our current state has space in, for understanding that reality, but Hannah through um, one of our partnering safe houses uh, in Nepal. And again, I wanna be very clear when I'm telling this story, there are no Americans in this story and I love America, you know, but I'm just saying sometimes we can picture, we, we know that Dan's talking to Paul and if you don't know, we're talking to two white dudes, right? We can just picture that they're the impetus behind this story. And it's it's the Holy Spirit and it's the power of what God's already doing in this country. Anyway, I will speed it up. Hannah gets to a safe house and at the safe house, she has education. She has um, her own bed. She has food every day. And then she's also introduced to the gospel. Now remember, she's part of a community that says she's worth nothing except to literally be trafficked. That's her place in life. And now she's told through the gospel that God sees her much differently. She says, that's too good to be true. I'll take some of that, right? Starts praying, starts reading the Bible with, I would argue, different eyes, certainly than you and I as white males have, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a non-white female who has been um, in, uh, in an atmosphere of trafficking and oppression all around her. She reads this gospel that tells her about freedom, that talks about freeing the slave, that talks about paying special attention to the widow, the orphan, the refugee. You know, the wow, there's a God that's paying specifically attention to me as a marginalized person. Uh, and she says, I want that relationship. She has that relationship. And then she keeps reading and it says things like, hey, go forgive people. So she goes back to her village and forgives the very person that sold her sister into slavery um, and just practices this, this single act of forgiveness. And what ends up happening is 180 of her family members become Christ followers in a community of 700, more than 400 become Christ followers. Because again, the gospel is powerful and, and it transforms and it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. She has since um, started her own business initiative in Nepal that's called Her, Himalayan Entrepreneurial Resources, that is resourcing women specifically around the areas of savings accounts, of business practices, and church planting. And 
giving women agency so that they are not at the behest of men or gender-based violence or a society that tells them they're less than, but giving them agency to move forward. That's the hopeful story. And that's what I mean when I personally talk about why the gospel, why churches, and why the words of an unruly rabbi has to go far past just what our belief structure is or behavior modification. But it is an answer, not only it's gotta work in Nepal and it's gotta work in Wapaka and it's gotta work in North Minneapolis where I'm from, uh, an answer that elevates above political conversations, above conversations around what place in society you are mm. and pays special attention if you believe that you are on the outside it pays special attention to pull you in and offer value and say you have the imago day the image of christ on you that's the kind of hope that's for right now not just for a future hope which is also awesome oh totally and i think we can lose sight of the the power of the gospel and really uh, lessen its value by only thinking that it's a ticket to heaven yeah and it's actually heaven coming to earth yeah as we get prepared for heaven in eternity and like on this side of eternity we can experience the fullness of heaven and it's all because of what christ has done and the older i get the more i realize why aren't we being more generous with this yeah like, why aren't we treating everybody like they have, like, the value that God has intrinsically created them with? And I just love what you're doing. I love Hannah's story. I am struck by the fact that she, through the power of the gospel, was able to forgive the person who sold her sister into slavery. Yeah. That is, like, mind-blowing. Yeah. And I, you know, um, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I had a good conversation with somebody that said, you celebrate that story, but what happened to that man? You know, like, is it just wipe your hands? He's all good. And what, before I, um, I won't get into what happened with that man, but uh, I want to be clear that I think every person that oppresses somebody else should be held accountable. You know, uh, that there should be systems that hold into account when somebody perpetuates something something on somebody else. Or um, especially if somebody listening has had something done to them. I'm so sorry. You're not just a story. You know, you're not just an illustration. Uh, and, I, I, you know, Jesus not only sees that pain, but has an answer for that pain. And I believe that people who have done unspeakable things to other people should be held accountable. That being said, one of the things about this is that God's grace is big enough for everybody. And so there might be other listeners that are thinking, I've done bad things. Um, you know, I, I, I do this or this or that. I, I watch this on, on my computer or I drink too much or shoot too much or, or gamble too much or this too much or spouse too much or, or any too much. And his grace is big enough. And that is part of the beauty of the gospel story. That is hope. There, there may need to be accountability, but even as people listen, uh, if, we, if we could understand the beauty of what the gospel offers for every person, um, not just specific identifiable stories, but for every person listening, that there is a piece of the kingdom there um, and that Jesus himself prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done. Like 
I want it to come down in your life, in your family's life, in your community's life, regardless of what's happened in the back, what's been done to you or what you've done, is that his kingdom is ready to invade and um, go from black and white to a technicolor existence. I love that. And I think we can get better at not being so great at drawing circles around people and creating exclusionary zones. And Hannah's story is just one of a countless number of instances that the gospel has taken true outsiders like you and I and invited us to become insiders because Christ, the true insider, became an outsider on our behalf mm-hmm. to walk us all outsiders into the inside. Like it's a beautiful big table with room for everybody. And I think our world would be so much better if we would build more tables, if we would create more spaces where we would lower our defenses and see people through the eyes of the heavenly father who, when he looks at us, it's just different. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I, it's, um, you know, we're in a season where this idea of in who's in and who's out and deciding who's close to me and who's far away, who's similar to me and who's different, who votes the same and who votes different, who looks the same and who looks different, who believes the same and who believes different. Um, I would say in, in the book that I read, the, the best-selling book of all time, um, you know, uh, since the Gutenberg Press, this, um, this collection of books that lead us to the person of Jesus invites us to do less of who separating, organizing, distinguishing. Um, When I read that book, there are two groups, Jesus and everybody else. And if we would see ourselves as everybody else and not some truncated version of who's more of a sinner or less of a sinner, more of a saint, less of a saint, but we are people. I'll tell you a story that I was just reading this morning. It's one of my favorite um, stories is the story of Mephibosheth which is a hard word to say, Um, but Mephibosheth, David is a king. This is in the first Testament. And David asks who he can extend kindness to in the house of Saul. And a very quick backdrop is Saul was the preceding king who tried to kill David. David becomes the king. And um, at that point, you're supposed to kill everybody in the preceding house, um, as long as it wasn't like, um, you're just supposed to obliterate them so nobody else has um, rightful Uh, say to the throne. That would have been the prudent leadership, politically, militarily right thing to do. And instead, David, um, and David ends up being in the lineage of Jesus. So he's a picture. David says this, he's like, but who could I extend kindness to? How can I do the opposite? Even though I have the right, the legal right to kill, who can I extend kindness to? And I stop right there and think of who do you think you have the right to be mean to? Maybe because they vote differently, maybe because they've wronged you, um, maybe because they've acted differently, maybe they talk different, maybe they have a different ethical construct than you do, but you feel you have the right to be angry at them, to do them wrong, or to at least cast them out. David is in that spot, and he asks a different question. Who in that group can I be kind to? And as a result, he invites Mephibosheth 
to his table. Now, Mephibosheth was not only an enemy, but he was lame. And so he had no right to be in the presence of a king who, in your world, doesn't you feel like doesn't have the right to be close to you. Is it somebody that doesn't have a home? Somebody that smells, somebody that's awkward, somebody that's a cast out if you're a high schooler that sits at a different table than you, all of those type of things. What is the practice that we can have of saying, who in that other group can we extend kindness to? And then he invites them to his table to eat and says, you can come back anytime. And at that point, what I want, where I get stuck every time is I think I'm David. I've got a great table. I'm inviting other people. And the first and most important thing is, that David is Jesus and we're Mephibosheth. We are the lame person that doesn't deserve Jesus's kindness. And yet he asked, who out there? I want to extend my kindness. And so if we can realize that we're just a whole bunch of Mephibosheths um, at a table and we're one beggar trying to help another beggar know where to find bread, um, man, then all of a sudden everybody is my equal. And I'm no higher or lower than anybody else. And so I would just encourage if um, someone's listening to do that practice. Who can you extend kindness to that you think is your other, your opposite, that is your enemy, that doesn't deserve? Maybe it's somebody that you've most recently got an argument and you know you were right. Um, maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody um, on a, some digital platform that you've got a beef with that is the most arrogant, un cultured, uncouth person in how they approach the world, maybe that's the very person that you can practice extending kindness to. Wow. Wow. And I think something happens in our lives when we uh, open our eyes to where we really stand. And what happens when we build these insular kingdoms for ourselves, where we find ourselves on the throne and we met out justice and we define who is worthy, who is unworthy, we actually have unwittingly created a prison for ourselves. Mm. And I love the gospel for the way that it invites you and I out of our own prisons because there's few things more heartbreaking and quite honestly, quite pitiful than a lonely emperor or a lonely empress who thinks they're in this kingdom of power when in reality, their castle looks more like a little tyke's plastic house <laughs> and it's actually quite small. Mm-hmm. And I've just been challenged lately by the gospel to do more of what you're referencing. You're challenging us all to do. What if we saw ourselves as recipients of this ridiculous grace that we didn't deserve and started there because too often we, we respond to Jesus. There's a story like it's the rich young ruler. He's Mm -hmm. talking to Jesus. He goes, Hey, what do I have to do to get what you've got? And he's like negotiating, trying to. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus has to drop the hammer and be like, listen, to do this right. If you're going to really do this thing, it, it's going to cost everything you have. And he's like, oh, snap. I can't do that. And then you fast forward to the story of Zacchaeus, a chapter later, I believe. And Zacchaeus gets it. He's like, oh, man. I'm just going to lead with giving everything I got. Yeah. 
and how different would our lives be if we started there? Instead of seeing Jesus as this person we can negotiate with, to see ourselves as the redeemed and beloved that he came to give life to. I, uh, I mean, I don't mean for this conversation to turn into a Bible study back and forth, but I actually love the rich young ruler as well. Um, because not, I used to think Jesus was almost putting the rich young ruler up to a test. Okay. I'm going to test. I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm going to test to see if you can do this. But what you just said about Zacchaeus, and if we go to the next book, um, which is Acts, what you'll see is Jesus was giving him a clue that nobody else quite had yet. He was giving him a clue saying, if you sell everything and give it away, right? If you hold loosely to your possessions on behalf of other people, if you understand that you're stewarding, these are all my words, not, uh, but if you do that, the kingdom is going to explode around you. Now, again, my words, because I have the hindsight of chronologically looking forward and a, 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 a book ahead in the Bible in Acts, which was chronologically later, where what happened? They all got together and they shared. They had meals and they looked at what they had and where the need was. And they just made sure that anybody in their community that had need, they looked and go, oh, I got some of that in my backyard. I'm going to bring it over here. And, um, and what happened? It says that the numbers were added daily. So this community was growing, not just like they were building their team, but like community. They were finding belonging through this idea of not holding on to our stuff so tightly, but holding it loosely so that other people may also thrive, going back to shalom, interconnected, thriving. So if we go back to the rich young ruler, he might have genuinely been asking, what, what, what can I do here? You know, what can I do? Where am I missing? And Jesus was giving him a hint. And if he took it, he would have been the example in scripture of one of the first people that was practicing before the church ever began this new church way of doing things. Now we look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was one of those first people practicing because when he came in to understand that in light of the kingdom, everything I have, like I want to be more connected to people, not more cut off from people. And that's what we see in Acts. So that's what I love about that story is I don't know that God's ever litmus testing us or drawing a line in the sand. He's seeing our heart and going, hey, okay, if you want more of the kingdom, I'm going to, I'm going to whisper some stuff. It's, it might sound foreign. It might sound weird. It might sound scary. But if you trust me, it's going to cause you to not only you to thrive, but the interconnected thriving of the people around you as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. And I think if we would really wake up to the reality that the gospel is the antidote, not only for our sin, not only for our brokenness, but it's also the antidote for our loneliness. Mm -hmm. Because so many of us live in these insulated uh, you know, lives, and we're so lonely. I mean, the, the data on loneliness in the United States is heartbreaking. We're, we're some of the most well-off people on the planet, but we're alone in all of our stuff. And the gospel gives us our power back to have stuff instead of letting stuff have us. Like yeah. how different would our lives be if we would see everything that's around us as, like you said, a stewarding opportunity that we can give away or pull close and we can do that because we're free to and i just think something powerful can happen 
when we drop the walls, when we open our hands and we, we do life with others. And uh, man, I, I just love that about the gospel. I, you know, one of the things, it seems like it's a theme of our conversation now is again, this interconnected thriving, this shalom, um, mm-hmm. because really um, stuff is not the thing that makes us happy. It's, it's one thing or the other. That's why I don't get mad when really rich people have lots of stuff and I don't get super sad when poor people, I, I do extreme poverty breaks my heart where you can't even, but if you've ever had the opportunity to travel, maybe it's to another part of your city or maybe it's another part of the world where there are people that are significantly poorer than you are currently, what you will find is that there are no more people that are sad and no more people that are happy. Uh, people have an incredible resiliency. The, the depth of happy, sad is centered around belonging. And if you are connected in a community, if your community all makes around $30,000, you may think you're going to be happier if you make 300000 But if that 300000 you don't have a community, you're going to wish you were back down there. Now, Obviously, the answer for most people is I want to have a community and have 300,000. You know, that's like the win. But if we could understand and look in scripture and trust that God's saying, hey, it's not about the thing. It's about the connectivity. Um, And here's why I know that, because one, we're invited to a personal connection with God, which we are the only um, faith construct that does that personal connection. Um, Secondly, in the book, one of the main pictures is marriage. And so we're, again, that's a relational piece. And then third is the church, a relational piece. It's all relational. It's not connected to our money. It's not connected to our things. It's connected to our relationship and our ability to connect. Not if you're an extrovert or an introvert, but if through vulnerability, you allow the God of the universe to connect to you and through your vulnerability, allow yourself to connect to other people. Notice I didn't say through your goodness, go connect to people that are less than you. I said through your own vulnerability, will you allow others to connect and you to connect to others through your vulnerability? Wow. I, I think we all, uh, we all want to be loved, right? And I think one of the ways that a person feels love is when they're understood. Mm-hmm. And that vulnerability that you're, referencing it's the gateway to being understood i think tim keller said you know to be fully known and fully loved is heaven Mm -hmm. when someone sees me as i really am and loves me lavishly knowing what they know about me that's heaven. Right. It's and, go ahead. It's why you would die for Marlena mm-hmm. because not, not because she's a better human than almost anybody, although she is an incredible human. Yes. But because she is the one human on the planet that has seen you at your worst, you know, maybe your mom, but I don't know your mom. So I only know Marlena, <laughs> um, but has seen you when you're sick, when you're crabby, when you haven't brushed your teeth, you know, when you smell your worst, when you act your worst, when when you are emotionally unbalanced and she still loves you. And 
there is something about being seen like that. I think about that with my wife all the time. I'm like, how does she still, how does she find me attractive? Because percentage of time in life where like when we were dating, I was always getting ready before the date. But now she sees me all the time when I'm not getting ready. So a majority of the time I am less put together than I am put together around her. And she loves me even more. Well, that makes me that kind of vulnerability that's then wrapped in love uh, is one of the most powerful things. And we experience it also with our kids. Right. Um, And so uh, for somebody listening who doesn't yet have a spouse or a kid, uh, you are not excluded from this conversation by any stretch. This are just the most recent examples for me. Uh, if you've had a very good friend, you know, uh, that person that just has your back, um, that's a picture. That is a uh, St. Uh, Teresa of Avila called it the sacrament of friendship. Mm. That closeness that helps us understand our deep spiritual bonds. Wow, I love that. I love that. Got a question for you. Yeah. Um, who is Paul Herkman proud of today? I, I mean, I just mentioned, but my wife, uh, my, so it's a whole other probably podcast, but we have um, uh, a unique family construct. We are a transracial family. Um, we have bigs and littles, five kids. Um, we have biological kids and then we have foster and adopted kids. Um, and that, uh, has opened up a whole new world. Like, like it's like starting over because my littles, um, are not the same skin color as we are. Mm. Um, and so we enter into a new season of learning. Um, and that learning is incredibly tangible. Like my wife, um, learning how to do our littles hair, um, hair that, uh, Every weekend, she puts five to six hours every weekend into hair. When we entered foster care, nobody told us, hey, by the way, you should set aside this amount of time every single week, you know, to do hair as a predominantly white male and predominantly white female. And I just mean from a genetic ratio, not from anything else. Uh, We did not grow up in spaces where you put that amount of time into your hair. And my wife through incredible diligence, does it so lovingly and so caringly and models what it looks like to care about what will allow the other person to flourish all the way down to their hair. Um, And there are kids, so we love them. Um, I also watch her carry, as we're recording this, there is a trial going on in our city and everybody has their opinions about the trial of Derek Chauvin and the death of George Floyd in our house. We say the murder of George Floyd, I understand legally. Um, That is a, well, I just understand. But in our house, I've watched my wife navigate what's going on with this trial and what's going on with our city, not just from the vantage point of how she was raised, but from the vantage point of where we live and how we're raising our kids. Um, And it's not easy. Um, but it's beautiful. Uh, I, we do not have the luxury of being confident that we're right all the time. We have to very regularly just say, I don't know, let's find that out. We have to regularly take um, t- 
time to understand sides that are different than what we grew up with. Um, and it's been beautiful. Uh, but my wife has modeled um, such selflessness in this journey and such empathy. Uh, and so easily, not just who I'm proud of, but she is easily my hero. Wow. Wow. I think there's something powerful. Number one, anytime um, a husband praises his wife, my heart soars every time I hear a man uh, bless uh, his family and those around him. And I really appreciate the way that you reference the need to assume that you might not know mm -hmm. because there is a difference between uh, confidence and arrogance. And what I see the gospel modeling for us is confident humility. Like, I, I think this is what it is, but I'm also humbling myself to admit it might not be what I think it is. Yeah. And what lives on the other side of that bridge because it's a bridge arrogance is the fastest way to create space between people yeah confidence is the fastest way to close the gap like when you're you're focused and you're like no this is this is who matters right now i'm walking across this bridge i don't know if the bridge is is going to move when i'm on it i don't even know what's going to be on the other side of the bridge but i'm walking across this bridge that confidence opens us up to a world that we really do want to connect with. And here's why I say that. Because there's people that God loves on the other side of the bridge. And how different would our lives be if we lived with confident humility every single day? Yeah, I, I love that. The phrase as you were talking, um, I'm picturing what you were saying about walking across the bridge. Um, and as you're walking across, as I'm walking across that bridge, the phrase that I use a lot is seek to understand. Seek to understand because if we're observant, most people are pretty confident in their viewpoint. And so what happens when two people are confident in their viewpoint, they say, they believe the same things, but their outcome, their methodology, their, um, their lived experience is remarkably different. And I'll, I'll give an example because it's something that we wrestle with in our home. Um, it, and I know I, I don't want this to devolve into a political conversation, so that it's not why I'm bringing it up. But um, uh, in the more, most recent election across time, not just this last one, but elections about the last 20 years or so, um, at the national level, uh, self-identified believing Christians that are white have voted around 80 to 90 percent red elephant Republican. Self-identified believing Christians that are non-white, especially um, our black brothers and sisters, vote blue, donkey, Democrat. They both love Jesus. They both read scripture. 
but there is a level of villainizing how the other votes, just voting. And instead of doubling down and saying why I'm right, why not seek to understand the other perspective and maybe seek to understand that unity is important, not monolithic thought, not even monolithic voting, but seeking to understand so that we don't villainize, so that we don't double down and kind of build up that little plastic palace that you talked about, um, that we're gonna guard with our life. I think it's okay to guard our worldview. I think it's okay to explain it. I think it's okay. But if your worldview never changes, then you have not interacted with the world. Wow. Your belief in God can be very stable, but if your worldview never changes, I would challenge you to have more conversations. Mine is changing all the time. I know I don't have the luxury of having the exact same worldview I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I just, I live in a different space. I'm raising multiple kids. Uh, I'm working internationally where we are talking about some of the deepest oppressions and injustices. I do not have the luxury to see the world the way I used to. I have to allow not only what I see to change, but also what the Holy Spirit is helping me to interpret what I see to change. And so as we walk that bridge in confidence, like you said, towards people that don't look, act, or believe like us, would you please encourage um, each other to seek to understand? Hmm. And there's a reason why God gave us two eyes, two ears, but only one mouth. Might be the Greek philosopher Epictetus who captured that truth about two ears, one mouth. <laughs> and what could happen if we listen to understood instead of listen to respond? Mm -hmm. Like what if I, I tried with all of me to understand the person across from me? Not trying to get my points in, not trying to win the debate because you can win and still lose. I mean, I've, I've discovered that relationally, like in, in marriage, I, I am a very imperfect man. And there are points that I would like, yeah, I totally won that argument, but guess who lost? Mm -hmm. Not just me. We all lost. My family lost when I planted a flag on a false summit and oh. I want to be better because um, our world deserves better. And the only way it gets better is when we as individuals become better and the gospel helps us be better than ourselves. It doesn't uh, go ahead. No, I just love what you're saying. I, I, I'm stuck on what you said about um, being right in an argument with your wife. You, you know, you can be right, but if you're right at the expense of us, the power of we, that unity, that bond, that mutual thriving, all of those things that are so deeply embedded in the gospel, and they're so deeply embedded in what it means to be in community. So if someone's listening, and they feel very, not only far from Jesus, but just aren't interested in the gospel aspect of our conversation. This is embedded in humanity, mm -hmm. our connectivity. And if we can elevate unity over being right, we're going to move the conversation and our culture and our society a lot further, faster, better, um, more holistic 
uh, if we put us ahead of me being right. Uh, and I know that that can scare people because they can feel like, no, no, we've been given the answer. No, the answer has been given to all of humanity. That's why Jesus died for everybody. And so we are not the only caretakers of this. Uh, we, uh, I love what you said. Our, our question is, how am I doing with this? And how can I seek to understand the other and be in community with them as we are all, in my opinion, being drawn by his spirit towards a greater sense of not only thriving, but for his kingdom come and his will to be done. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough, Paul, for, for making the time to just have a chat with me. I, I'm enriched like to my toes, bro. I'm enriched by the thoughts that you brought to this conversation. And I'm excited to go back and listen again to the push and the pull, the ahas, and even some of the oh no's. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for making this happen and for making the time, Paul. I'm so grateful for you today. It's, it's been my honor. Uh, and I want to thank you for allowing conversations that will um, spur other people along, uh, hopefully, anyway, right, um, towards uh, when they turn off listening to this, stepping into their relationships with the hope that they can bring about thriving, not only for them, but for other people. Mm, that's beautiful, ma'am. That's beautiful. So there you have it, folks. We have come to the end of the line on today's episode of Hope Between the Lines. I am so thankful for that conversation that Paul and I got to have, and I'm hoping it spurs more conversations in your world. What could happen if we listened to understand instead of we listened to respond? What could happen if we used both our eyes, both our ears, twice as much and used our one mouth half as much and contributed beauty and value and worth to every single person we meet, regardless of where they stand, even how they stand, because we know that the image of God has been uh, really placed on every single human being that walks this planet. So I want to invite you to share this episode with a friend. Make sure you let them know that this podcast is serving up great conversations regularly. And today's conversation was just uh, really an amazing moment on so many levels because it was full of amazing moments at so many stops along the way. I do want to encourage you to check into the show notes to make sure you can find out where to learn more about Venture as they are committed to helping people discover the whole gospel for the whole person and as they are putting movement to this mission of the worldwide advancement of the gospel, this love message from heaven to earth, they've got a real need right now for people to invest into their mission. So please click on the link in the show notes to learn more about Venture and how you can be a part of that. 
lastly and most surely, never ever leastly. May the Lord bless you, may he keep you, and may his face shine forever brightly upon you.